people need to understand the difference between the output and the outcome. For example, I might want to actually uh, um, get healthier, right? And so one way I can measure healthier is losing weight. But the, the real outcome I want is I want to actually go skiing with my family. So losing weight doesn't actually help me get to the outcome I want. And so understanding what the outcome is, is different than the metric or the output that I'm trying to create. And so part of this is actually understanding the difference between, for example, what I call a lead measure, a lag measure, and an outcome. Jobs to be done is primarily meant for innovation and what's next and what to go build on top of what you're doing as opposed to executional excellence of making sure that you're delivering on what you, the promise you made. I think, I think another part is, is if I have a technology or a product and I'm taking it to a new market and I, and I don't know actually kind of how they're going to use it or how it's going to actually fit in it. Again, that's where I would go do jobs. It's like anytime there's something new, right? Or some unknown, that's where I'm going to start. Hi everyone. And welcome to product with Panache, your podcast dedicated to user experience, product discovery, and jobs to be done. On this show, we'll regularly be talking to UX practitioners, thought leaders, and fellow product enthusiasts to get different perspectives around how to place users at the heart of every conversation. I'm Axel Soria, your host, and today I'm super excited to share this very first episode of the show with you. I've recently had the immense pleasure of hosting Bob Moister, the co-architect of Jobs to be Done Theory, together with my co-host Solène Lagré where we discussed how jobs to be done can be better integrated into the practice of product management. This episode was a YouTube live show hosted on April 13th, 2021. I really hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Bob. How's it going? Good. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be the kickoff, if you will. Yeah, that would be that. That would be absolutely great. Um, so we've been chatting uh, now uh, for for a while, and I think um, I wouldn't do uh, as great as a job of giving an intro as you could. So why don't we start with maybe a few words from you? Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and and how how jobs came around? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the best way to start it is that uh, I think I came out of the womb as an engineer. <laughs> um, I was breaking things by the time I was two or three years old. So I've been breaking things for over 50 years. Uh, I've been fixing things for 45 years, so I don't get in trouble, but I've been building things for uh, over 35 years. And so um, I've I've always loved to kind of uh, assemble and put things together. And, and I've had some great mentors along the way that helped me become a really good product person, if you will. But Jobs is one of those things where uh, some of my early products as a kid, so for example, I built parachutes um, out of bed sheets and then I jumped off the, the roof and broke my leg. So it wasn't really a great product at that point. But um, I had uh, three close head brain injuries before I was seven. And so I have struggled to read and write. And one of those, um, I think about it as uh, is one of the greatest gifts I got because it forced me to think differently about things and realize how to uh, handle a, a, a disability like dyslexia. And so to me, jobs really came about from the fact that I couldn't read all these reports people would give me. And, and how do we actually understand what people really mean versus what they say? And so jobs was this aspect of um, I was kind of, uh, I, I would say I was lied to in school by saying that if you build it, they will come. 
And from the first couple products I built, uh, they didn't come. And I realized I had to actually talk to customers and understand how to fit into their lives. And that's kind of where jobs came about in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And how did you go about actually, you know, um, going from, we talked about this last time we chatted and I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. How did, how did this, this, um, kind of like genesis of the story with, with Clay Christensen and, you know, formalizing jobs and moving from theory to practice, which I think is the part where most people are, uh, most people are interested in today. How did that happen? Yeah. So, um, to, so this is one of those things that, that it was a method, mostly a method that I, I was using. And I, I worked out with uh, uh, Rick Petey and uh, John Palmer, some uh, Pam Murta, different people to help kind of build a methodology around it. And it was because those things weren't um, uh, the, the tools that we had at hand weren't actually full enough to help us see kind of the, the bigger context. But but um, we had become friends with Clay uh, around a project that we were doing very early in 93, uh, 94, I guess it was. And um, as we did that, Clay would share some of the things he was doing. And I would always go and say, Clay, what are you working on and who do you need help from? And over the years, Clay, uh, we would explain jobs to him. And, and competing against luck, you saw the one thing where we uh, there's a story around Unilever coming in and we, we presented mm-hmm. jobs there and how difficult it was for people to kind of grasp it. Um, but over, over the years, Clay had kind of written some papers around it and, and kind of formalized it. And what I would say is I was kind of the practitioner and Clay was the theorist. Yeah. And in, in 2000 and I think eight or nine when Clay had, Clay had a heart attack, stroke and cancer all in the same year. And I went and visited him when he was in the hospital. And one of the things he, 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 he was kind of, uh, passionate about at the time was like, we need to turn jobs into a theory. And I had no idea what that meant. But my thing was, is how do we actually uh, uh, gather the data and and build the right language and put everything around it? And 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 then from 2010 to 2018 was kind of the, the, the transformation from a from a method to a theory. And so he, he helped me see it in many different lights. And to be honest, I've, I've applied it in just about every circum. Like, it's very interesting how many different places you've, you can apply this. Um, we've, we've, I've done it with religion. Like what causes somebody to choose a religion? What job does uh, you know church do? Um, I've done it around what, what job does an employee hire a new company for? Like, why does somebody switch from one company to another uh, to, you know, standard product questions of like, uh, how do you, you know, how do you hire a password manager or, you know, how, what, what causes you to buy a new computer? All those kinds of things. So. Wow. And, and so if you had to maybe summarize, what is jobs to be done, Sarah? Yeah. So the theory is really based on this premise that people don't buy products, they hire them to make progress in their lives. And so ultimately, there's a there's a struggling moment that you have in your life that that causes you to say what I'm doing isn't working, and I got to find a new way. And so ultimately, it's about looking at those looking at that situation and understanding both the context you're in, and the outcome that you seek and the trade offs you're willing to make in order to make that progress. And so ultimately, anytime we change our behavior, so if I'm, you know, if I buy Tide every week, right, the fact is, is like at some point, that's not what what I mean by buying something. It's like, you know, that Tide will do the job, but it's when you switch from Tide to Cheer or from Cheer to Tide, it's like, what causes you to say, today's the day I'm going to stop using this one thing and start using this new thing. And as a product person or somebody who's in innovation, that's really where I've been focused is kind of what's next and how do we always find what's next? And so 
That's the ultimate frame we're wrapping around what we would say is the problem to solve, which is both that context and the outcome together to de determine value. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. W would you say that um, the evangelization of jobs has been easy or tricky in the US? Or how, how has that gone around? Um, so <laughs> I think it's been an uphill battle uh, for, a, for a long time. I think the, 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 I think the, the places where it's been accepted the most is where, um, I would say is, as Clay would say, is at the low end of the market where people can't do big research. And so they've been able to do little research, which I consider jobs, uh, what I call hypothesis building type research, where I go in and listen to the customer and build hypotheses from this research, as opposed to most research, you have hypotheses and try to prove your hypotheses through the research, right? And so I think that it's it's as it's gone down market, it's actually gotten wider and wider acceptance. And and there's been some bigger companies who've accepted it or have been using it and using it for tens, if not twenties of years. Um, but at, at some point in time, those are more of the anomaly than the norm. And um, one of the questions actually I had was, you know, you uh, nowadays, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you do a lot of consulting work with some of the big tech companies, right? Um, I do do some, but I, I do a third of my work is big corporate, a third of my work is startups, and then a third of my work is not for profit. So okay. uh, uh, think of churches and, uh, you know, uh, dyslexia and all, all the things where people need help. I also work there. But yes, I do some do do some work with large tech. Not allowed to name names, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there was a, a lot of NDA signing going yeah. on. <laughs> that that um, document, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the one of the things I, I was really interested in is um, how you know who do you work in these companies? Who do you work with in these companies? Mm -hmm. And typically, um, I have a lot of interrogations around like. How does a product team integrate jobs to be done as part of their practice, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like the main topic for, for today's session. Mm -hmm. Like what have you seen in terms of behavior or acceptance of jobs to be done as a, as a theory, as a framework for product yep. management? And how do these people you've been working with, whether they're product managers or designers, how do these people really integrate this as part of their practice? Yeah. So I think that at some point in time, um, I've seen it both start at the top. So like Intercom, when Intercom, came, uh, we started working with Intercom, I think they had been launched for about two years. Um, and they brought Owen, who was the CEO and co-founder with Dez, and they brought Paul Adams and uh, uh, Matt Hodges and uh, Shane Townsend. Like their senior executive team came and we did it together. And then from there, they actually took those jobs and and you know built they actually built their platform and then built products off of that and so for them it's it's kind of top down um, and there's some other uh, I'll say uh, larger companies where we've done it that way the, the there's other companies though where what we've done is we've started actually in areas where they're struggling um, to produce or to launch a product and we'll start with a team and we'll almost isolate them and in a way, uh, enable them to actually go out and learn around the jobs and then actually use it as a way to iterate very, very quickly. And so we've, uh, so for example, um, Ryan Singer wrote a book called Shape Up and there's a notion of six week cycles in it. And it's one of those things where understanding the jobs and then b doing six week cycles around it allows you to kind of um, 
learn really fast and get to those unknowns and actually figure out then kind of what to go build and how to launch something in what we call slices as opposed to layers. But the reality is, is that we've been able to have these teams kind of divide up and find work. So think of what's the, what's the job this feature is that you're working on supposed to do? What progress is it going to help somebody make? And where is it in the timeline or where is it in the, in the user experience and why would they hire it? And so by using that kind of lens around it and then understanding the trade-offs to make around it, it allows you to work way faster. And so it's that, it's almost like the, I always think of it as like the, the value code that's been passed to me or the DNA of from the customer that's been passed to me then to know what trade-offs to make and how to make them. And so, and when we do it that way, what we find is the the team or two that that, that kind of does it in isolation, they, they they become ridiculously productive fast. And what happens is within four to six months, a couple of cycles, they end up people going like, like, how are they doing that? And then people kind of go like, let's let's study what they're doing. And then it starts, it's almost like starts virally and then kind of expands to the organization. And so I've seen it work both ways. Um, I think it depends on the organization and depends on where, 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 you know, who's, who's got the bug and who really understands the struggling moment about, uh, again, um, if you apply jobs to jobs, it's like, what struggling moment do you have in your product development process to say, like, you need a new way to do research. Like people don't need a new way to do research. They need to be more successful in how they launch products. Right. And jobs is, is one of those things that can help. And maybe can we take one one specific situation where you join a product development team and yeah. they explain that they're, they're having a hard time coming up with exactly where the value is for, for the user and, yep. um, and that probably jobs to be done could be helping, yep. but don't know exactly how yep. to start. So a good example is we work with a company down in uh, Charlotte uh, um, called Atrium Health and they did... Um, Uh, virtual visits. And so they had, uh, this was before the pandemic, but but for the most part, as we started to actually, uh, they had built this thing and had launched it. And for them, they, they have very little traction with it. And so what we did is we actually then started to actually understand what are the struggling moments? When do people really, you know, want to use it? How do they actually fit it into their lives? And you started to realize when you, so for example, one of the, one of the, one of the big ahas was the notion of, I had to learn a whole new technology when I'm sick. And nobody wants to do that. And so you start to realize like what they end up doing is making people, enabling people to uh, make their next reservation with their doctor on the virtual visit platform. So they were familiar with it. So when they were sick, they could use it. Right. Mm. The other thing that they realized is they were talking about all the features and benefits, but the, there were very specific um, occasions when people would actually use it. Like, so for example, one of them was this aspect of, we just changed the marketing and positioning around like, you know, feeling, feeling sick. Don't miss, don't miss that uh, wedding this weekend. Uh, come do a virtual visit where they would advertise open 24 seven. We're here when you're ready, but people still didn't know when to actually go. But by actually talking about uh, use cases or situations or kind of that context and what's most important that, that we were able to almost uh, grow uh, consumption by, by, by almost 10,000 X. It was amazing. And and actually, where where do you start to find these struggling moments? Like, how yeah. do you? Yeah. So so for the, them, what we did is we actually uh, we we found people who were successful in using it and said like, okay, how did you decide to do that and and understand that journey along the way? But what were the struggling moments? And then we actually had people who tried it and failed. 
and understood kind of what was in their way and where where it was. And then from there, as people uh, started to use it for one thing, they started to use it for others. So it's this continuous notion of trying to understand how are people pulling it into their lives and and what progress are they hoping for by doing that. And so it's starting with to me, everything always starts with a struggling moment. If there's not a struggling moment, I'm I I don't know how to innovate there. It's just it's not possible. And so in the jobs to be done approach, you have this kind of um, anchor that you mm -hmm. start with. So it's mm -hmm. it's basically the decision of uh, buying something or starting to use something We're or doing, actually doing something or shopping to do something. Yep. Yeah. And so how do you? And, and from that anchor, you will try to get back and recreate the story so that you can find this struggling moment. Um, so in a lot of cases, we can see the struggling moments. We, we have to actually observe the struggling moments and then understand how they got it. So sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll actually go in and talk to people about switches that they made and then understand how to go back to the struggling moment. And other times we'll just, we'll talk about like, what are the, what are the three things you struggle with most around, uh, for example, uh, uh, virtual uh, working it from home? And all of a sudden you start to realize like there's a lot of things people struggle with. And then what have they actually done to actually make it better? Because it's there's one thing about saying something they, that they struggle with it, but there's a second thing if they want to do something about it. And so part of it is, is knowing the difference between what I would say is a, an espoused problem and a real problem. Hmm. And this is something that you you are able to d differentiate by yeah. look, by looking at the decisions they make. Yes. So here's the thing: is is uh, this is a really good topic. I've been wrestling with uh, some uh, some different colleagues over a period of time on this, and we talk about it's about understanding the intent behind what people mean, not what they say. Like people can say the exact same words and have completely different meaning to it. And so part of this is that, that in the method itself, we talk about that it's, it's rooted in criminal and intelligence interrogation to actually get to intent as opposed to try to make sure we have verbatims. Because like I can say the same thing, boy, you know, your product, it's, it's really, it's good versus your product's really good, right? The, the going down at the end means there's something wrong. So the next question I should be asking would be is like, so what, what's the one thing you don't like about it versus when they go up, it, it, it's actually that there, there's something good about it. It's like, what's the one thing you love about it and why? And the, the biggest part about this is trying to stay away from your product and understand everything wrapped around the product, the context, the trade-offs, the struggling moments, the pushes and the pulls, the anxieties, and like, I'm trying to actually define the problem by by the opposite of the solution. So anytime somebody would say a solution in a feature, I'd go like, why is that important? Like most people assume that, you know, making it easier is better, but what does easier really mean? There's actually 23 different definitions of easy, <laughs> right? And as a, as a product person, I can't do all easy. I can only do four of the 22. Which of the four I should be working on? And so this is where marketers have been trained. And, and I, again, I put it on, on, the, on the way that they've been trained to abstract things up to the most meaningful thing to the widest audiences possible. But the reality as an as a, as a engineer or as a product person, I have to cause this to happen. I have to cause it to be fun. I have to cause it to be easy. And causality is very different than people just saying it. And that's why this research is different because it's not market research. I think of it as, as actually, you know, it's, it's again, uh, hypothesis building research around kind of the, the customer's 
context and outcome, not just what the market says or what the market, uh, the, the themes of the market are. And there's also this thing where I guess in a lot of product teams, right, where product managers will say we are user centric because uh, we listen to the customer feedback and people tell us what they want and they literally translate the customer feedback into, okay, this is what we should do. But um, I think, I can't remember who says this, but there's somebody, I can't remember whether it was Steve Jobs or, or Steve Jobs or somebody else, but that said that people notoriously do not know how to express what they actually need. Right. Um, and they tell you, they actually tell you what they think they need, but there's a lot of, like you say, there's a lot of um, uh, biases and things that go into this response. And right. this idea that you were just mentioning about, about finding intent, I think this is the core of it, right? This is yeah. the heart of the, the, the methodology. Yes. And I think one of the things I've observed uh, in the kind of like the product management community is quite a lot of product managers um, have trouble understanding what is the difference between just doing the normal user research interview they would have done mm -hmm. versus adopting a jobs to be done first approach. Like yeah. what is this, this interview tactic that yeah. or method that makes the difference? So, and, and again, I, 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 I only have so many words to explain, but I, what I'll try is to say is I want in, in a, in a, in a traditional product research um, episode or, you know, kind of a, a activity, you're talking way more about the product and what they think of the product, right? In a jobs interview, you virtually never talk about the product. It is always about them and why, what is it about the product that made them do this or do that or not do this or not do that. And so partially every time they talk about a feature, I'm going to ask, why is that feature important? <laughs> right. And, and what is it about the feature? And what do you mean by that feature? As opposed to tell me why you liked it. And it's like, they're trying to get it to be more about the tell, tell them about the product as opposed to tell me about the causality of why you bought it. And so the, the fundamental difference is they're almost like taking a snapshot, uh, a, a picture. And what I'm trying to do is create a movie of how the product comes into people's lives through time and how it satisfies and helps them make progress. And so most of the time we're trying to get themes in product research and, and, and to be honest in jobs, we're trying to actually understand the progress that people are trying. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs, and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. And one thing that I find really interesting is actually the way that, I mean, I've read some uh, interviews you've done with uh, users. So, for instance, mm -hmm. um, people that wanted to, that bought a mattress and they mm -hmm. thought they bought it out of, uh, like, inspiration of the day. Yeah. But actually, it was a, a, a long <laughs> yes. process. 
Yes. And I really like the way you try to recreate the story by asking, like, what time was it? Yes. Who, who were you with? Uh, yes. What did you buy with the mattress? Things like that. And it feels like it's just details, but in the way that you ask those questions, it also helps the, the person remembering the context. Yes. And so that the, gives life to the story. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I think about this is that what, what I've always been surprised about is how much people really can remember if you help them get back into the moment. And so the way I think about it is, is it's almost like a, a, a a corn kernel that when you give them enough context around it, it's all of a sudden it pops and then they can remember everything about that. They can tell you what it smelled like. They can tell you what it, you know, how bright it, what it was raining out. Like, so part of it is, is by, by, by almost going into, in some cases, ridiculous amounts of detail of whether they can recall or not, it, by surrounding it, it all of a sudden makes that moment come back to the point where they can actually describe it in vivid detail, right? And again, we're, we're trying to actually get to what people, why people did what they did, because it's not just about what they wanted, it's, it's more about where and when and why, right, than what and how. And so ultimately, if I have who, who, when, where and why I can then figure out what, how, and how much. And so right. that's what I'm actually trying to do. So what happens is this is not people segmentation. This is almost like moment segmentation. This is about where, where in space and time do people actually value this product the most because they're in this context and wanting this outcome. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I would call is the secret to how I've been able to innovate so successfully over the years. Yeah. That's super, super interesting. Thanks for that. Um, I'm just going to pick up a question from Alfredo here, um, who's dropped something in the YouTube chat. So Alfredo is asking, if you have to choose from different struggling moments that emerge from consumers, yeah. how do you choose the one that's worth to solve? Yeah. So there's uh, what I, the, the, the phrase I use is the one with the most energy. The one where they're actually the most frustrated or the fact is, is that they have the largest, uh, they have the largest to gain if that, fr that frustration is solved and trying to actually under, like, so for example, it might be something that they're frustrated about, but only happens once a week versus something that's actually, uh, they're frustrated about every day. It might be the, actually the everyday thing, but if the magnitude of the one day a week thing is there, it might cause them to fire it. So how do you actually see those struggles and understand the magnitude of the energy and the consequence of getting rid of that struggle. And actually, while we're on the, the emotions um, yeah. topic, do, yeah. do you feel or do you see that some emotions may have more powerful um, effect in how people fire or hire products? I, I, yeah, I think I think every every hiring situation has a combination of social, emotional, and functional components. Um, I think most people try to boil it down to very functional benefits of why people do things. Ultimately, to understand what the emotion is, of, for example, belonging. Like, so for example, one of the reasons why people switch from one church to another or from one religion to another is to belong. Well, belonging is a very um, emotional thing, but I can actually talk about the underlying causal things I have to do to create belonging, but I need to know that belonging is the important thing I'm trying to, the effect I'm trying to create. And so part of it is understanding where are the, where are those triggers? And you have to realize that there's, there's the removal of the negative 
out of the struggling moment. But then there's also the 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 enhancing of the positive or the progress that they make that that actually can be more valuable as well than just getting rid of the, the the struggle. So part of it is to realize the struggle is like the seed or the anchor. But the reality is, is that in the end, people might actually love something more because of the experience, not because of the reason why they left it or left the old one. Actually, that makes me think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yep. where you have that, that belonging one. I think it's in the middle. Yep. And then at the bottom, you have uh, safety and yep. physical needs. Yep. And um, I was curious to know your, what, your, what were your thoughts on um, those specific needs that, <laughs> that don't yep. appear like um, desire. I, I desire a new uh, yep. iPhone so or something. Yep. So, so what I would say is that I, I believe that every innovation, uh, right, creates a new struggling moment in a different dimension. And so what happens is, is that we, we will always like, if you think about a, a new phone, let's say seven, eight years ago, it was about uh, speed and was about the conductivity. It was about uh, size, right? And now a new phone is about a camera, <laughs> Right. And so part of it is, is as as they actually build in some function, that, that functionality, they have to actually realize there are new requirements that come up and that the, the camera was good, was better than nothing. But now a better camera is actually a reason for us to buy a new phone. And so part of this is to realize that it's the evolution of the co of the context that causes us to say, when do we actually do something different? And so to, to be honest, it's, it's seeing where those new next struggling moments are going to lie. As you think of it as, a, as there's a list of problems, and as you check this one off, the, the other ones kind of lift up that list. And so what are those, and, and can we see them? Or that new technology, which made it faster and better connectivity, had horrible battery life, right? And so all of a sudden, now battery life became the next thing. And so you can see what, what I call the lines of evolution of how basically technology will evolve from the customer perspective. Right. And so if we take the example of, um, of someone that's at the bottom of the, of this need, uh, yep. like it's a health issue or, yep. or yeah, need a home or something. And they, so if we take a chronic disease, like diabetes or something, yep. how would you think, uh, about their jobs? Because obviously one of their job is to get better, right. but yeah, is that a job so to be done or? So, so what I would say is jobs is about choice, but when there's no choice, it's, it's just purely a function. So like diabetes is one of those things where there's, there's like, I've got to be able to take insulin to stay alive. And so part of it is that, but then once, once I understand I need insulin, how do I get the insulin? How often do I do it? Can I get actually a pump for it? Like there's a whole bunch of other things I can evolve once I get past the fact that you need insulin. And so part of it is to actually understand when are they actually like, if they don't get the insulin, they will die. But now there's 20 different ways I can actually get them to have the insulin. And so part of this gets back to like, how, how important is it? How inconvenient is it? How are these other things that are going on? But there's that basic notion of, do they need it or not? It, like that, that to me is, is what I would call a functional, just a purely functional requirement you have to satisfy. Yep. I'll use this uh, maybe as an opportunity to um, ask another question here yep. from uh, the YouTube chat. Um, 
Arda is asking us, do you think jobs, jobs to be done are old, as in have always been there ultimately, or they're specific to every case or both? I guess what uh, Arda is trying to say is, um, have the jobs always been there for the customer or um, are they specific to, you know, every person you speak to uh, has a different context, maybe different job? Uh, how, how does that work? I think I think uh, the underlying causal mechanism. So the way I think about it is, I think of a job as like a vector of of progress that people want to make. And what happens is through time, they they evolve, but the overall vector is still in the same direction. And so in some cases, it's about either uh, um, washing my clothes, uh, getting them cleaner or making it easier or faster. Like at some point in time, those, those are all like, whether it was 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, the, the progress is, is, is basically relative to where they are in the underlying technology. But the notion of washing clothes has still been around for years and years and years and years and years. And so part of it is, is, is making me feel like a, you know, like a good parent, right. As I wash the clothes like that, those are all reasons why people bought laundry detergent back in the 1920s. It's the same job now, but the reality is, is why people buy tie pods is very different if you will, than why they buy just laundry detergent. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's the evolution of that job, the same job. So I don't believe jobs really change over time. I think the character of them change over time. Okay. That's super interesting. Um, before we um, uh, before we continue, I just wanted to maybe uh, pause on something which I think is uh, becoming a, a kind of like a big change in the industry, certainly from a product management point of view. Um, I I was telling you about this the other day. So I had a chat with uh, Marty Kagan back in January where we talked about the evolution of uh, product management as a job and mm-hmm. how it was going to probably change. I asked him what do you think it's going to look like in five to 10 years time? And he said that he thought product managers are going to be doing more and more discovery work and less and less delivery work, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of this discovery work obviously has to do with research and interviews, etc. So it's definitely a skill set product managers in the future will want to, to build upon, right? Yep. Um, what are some of the things you've seen in, in the companies you've worked with uh, that have been successful in product managers adopting these interviewing skills right because it comes down to this right the, the practice of um of product management and 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 user yeah. research like what if you had to boil it down like what are some of the successful strategies or tactics you've seen yeah. these teams adopt so so this is actually my uh my next book i just uh i got the first draft back but the, it's called learning to build and I call it, uh, and it's the five bedrock skills of innovators and entrepreneurs. And it's these skills that that most people aren't teaching at school, right? So like one of them is called empathetic perspective. Like a really good product manager can see things from engineering's perspective, from the customer's perspective, from finance's perspective, from like all the different perspectives, not, not judging, but seeing then where the conflicts are going to be and where things have to play out. And so I think of product managers as integrators. I think they started as almost like, sorry, but cat herders, right? We're just going to like, we need somebody to kind of keep this thing going along the way. But the reality is, is like at some point in time, there's lots of integration. There's lots of trade-offs to be made. And at some point in time, people don't, and, and it's, it's from, 
it's like there's a strategic level and then there's that strategic to tactical level down to the execution level. And it's that, that in between level that I think is where most product managers should be working to actually translate. It's also the messy middle, right? Yeah. But it's, 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 it's not necessarily the messy middle. It's, it's the fact that there's lots of possibilities and lots of unknowns. Right. I think the, 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 the bigger, the bigger thing to me is that most people treat product management as if it's planning, right? Yes, but the reality correct. is that, that really good product managers talk about what they don't know. What are the unknowns that I got to go figure out to make the known? Because once it's known, the predictability is easy. And what happens is, is, is you have this notion of like, you know, imagine like when you're planning out something, you have imagined tasks, but along the way you have these discovered tasks that nobody really knows what to do with. Right. And it usually changes the whole way the project is run. And so part of this is realizing that they have to take this kind of longer longitudinal view of kind of like the evolution of both the customer, the product and the technology and see where it's going. And so I, I, I feel them having more of a, like them growing up into the, a little bit more in the strategic realm, but also having language and providing. So the other part is I feel like a lot of product managers treat things very, very uh, specific. Like they're telling the, the designers what to do, or they're telling them exactly what to go execute. And I think what's going to happen is they're going to actually give them latitude to go do their work the best they can. So they're going to move instead of getting more tactical, they're going to get less tactical, but more, guardrails of what to go do or or the direction and and enabling the, the 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 designer and the engineer and everybody else to to be creative to do great work and i think there's a there's a big uh, aspect of you know you're basically talking about empowerment right and i think yeah. there's a, a a big part of it is company culture right so um i don't know like what are some of the traits you've seen uh, that some of the companies that have been successful in adopting frameworks like jobs and being truly user centric what are some yeah. of these traits you've seen in these companies yeah. i think it can be really helpful especially to people that are watching us right now and are thinking about how do they sell jobs internally or how do they sell some of these uh, uh, user-centric approaches to their leadership team? Yep. Um, what are some of those, like these successful traits that you've so seen? I, I, th I think some of it is, is like, so what's very interesting is, um, uh, so I've, I've uh, started to teach. So I teach at uh, Northwestern at the Kellogg school and I teach, uh, which is here in the U S and I teach at Harvard, MIT and their entrepreneurial school. And, what, what I'm finding is there's a very interesting phrase that people say when they've studied either uh, product management, or they say fail early, fail often, right? But if you actually yeah. talk to somebody who's actually a product manager or an innovator or anybody along those lines, like if you ask about the last time they failed, they stutter. Like I either, I either just failed like two minutes ago or I didn't fail. I just learned a bunch of stuff. And you start to realize that they're, they're way more about learning and so they don't let any opportunity where they fail to go by without learning something new. And in most cases, really good product people, they actually cause their product to fail because they didn't know it was going to fail. Like they actually want to learn where the limits are of failure to learn about it because that's how they actually are going to figure it out. And so you start to realize like most people are only prototyping to verify I'm going to build one. I'm going to build another. We'll test the two and we'll do an A-B test, right? They're not prototyping to learn. They're prototyping to verify. 
And so what you start to realize is, is really successful people realize like, I have to prototype to f- figure out how it really works. What are the multiple different ways I can do something? There's not one way to, there's not one answer kind of thing. And so I think that's a, one of the bigger traits that I see. Uh, I call it prototyping to learn. The, the other one is, is identifying and managing trade-offs. The whole aspect of realizing that there is no ideal anything and that there is never enough time, money, or effort to basically build the best in the world. So what are the trade-offs you can make and you're willing to make? And what does progress really look like? And you start to realize like that's a very different notion than building the best for everybody. Like anytime a product manager says, well, I'm trying to build the best in class for everybody, this thing. And I'll literally go like, I'm out because <laughs> I know that that's just not possible. It's yeah. just a very unrealistic goal. And, and to be honest, it's a very frustrating goal to try to go after. And on, on that one, like picking your battles, do you think Jeff Sweden can help? Like, um, Yeah, I, I think uh, I would say I'm not great at those kinds of, quote, politics, per se. But the fact is, is I think that that the customer is and the, and the think of it this way, the person who's paying the money is ultimately the person who's going to actually help understand the trade-offs you have to make. And when the trade-offs of the company don't map to the trade-offs of the customer, that's when the product fails. And so to me, understanding the trade-offs the customers are willing to make is, is very essential to actually understand the trade-offs that we should be willing to make. Right. Thanks. And Super interesting. Uh, go on, Celine, and then I'll pick, uh, I'll pick a question from, from the chat. Go on. Actually, that, make me, that makes me think of another thing I wanted to, to discuss with you. Um, so obviously, how do you measure that you've answered the job to be done? Yeah. You can say, but people chose my product, so I guess the job is done. That's not it, though. Just buying the product, the, buying the product is the hope to make the progress. Exactly. The question is, what's the real progress people make? Yeah. And so this is where I talk about people need to understand the difference between the output and the outcome, right? And that the, at some point in time, it's like, uh, for example, I might want to actually uh, um, get healthier, right? And so one way I can measure healthier is losing weight. But the, the real outcome I want is I want to actually go skiing with my family. So losing weight doesn't actually help me get to the outcome I want. And so understanding what the outcome is, is different than the metric or the output that I'm trying to create. And so part of this is actually understanding the difference between, for example, what I call a lead measure, a lag measure, and an outcome. And being able to understand and differentiate. So trying to actually get people to say like, oh boy, if I lose weight, that's great. It's like, well, you have to ask, why do you want to lose weight? Hmm. It's not random. And if you actually understand why they want to lose weight, and then it's like, there's actually 20 different reasons why people want to lose weight. And it's not, it's not the end goal. And so without understanding the rest of that context and understanding their motivation of why they want to lose weight, then you actually aren't successful. That's why it's so hard for people to lose. It's not, people know how to lose weight, but they just, in some cases, they can't actually follow it because they haven't framed it properly. Right. And you just talked about um, uh, a lag metric, a lead metric, and an outcome. Can you give us uh, an example of what uh, a, color, a couple of these yeah. metrics could be? So, so my, my favorite is, is uh, I have an aura ring, right? In the aura ring, it basically tells me how many steps I've done today. And so is the Apple Watch, but but it tells me how many steps I've done today. And that's a lead metric to say, like, here, here's where you're at. You need to go do some other stuff to keep you going, right? The lag metric is weight. 
because it, it's an after the fact, after everything's done, I just measure my weight. How did I do? But if I actually measure my activity and my calories, I actually never have to measure my weight. <laughs> right. And so part of this is to understand what are the right set of metrics that we actually need to actually get the cause and effect. Right. And so understanding cause and effect is another one of those traits. So I talk about as causal structures. Most product people have a very good understanding of causal structures and cause and effect. They're not hiding behind words like easy and fast and healthy and fun. They actually understand what people mean by it and how to cause that. Right. And so causality is like one of those underlying traits as well. So trade-offs, prototyping to learn, empathetic perspective, and, uh, you know, uh, causality. That's really, that's really super insightful. Um, picking up a question here from the YouTube chat. Um, Joanna is asking if the anxiety of hiring a new product for a job is too big, yes. for example, like being an accountant and changing your current solution, yeah. is it better to focus on reducing this or trying to adjust the other forces? Uh-huh. I think that's a great question. I think this is the notion of how do I prototype? I think at some point in time, my, my experience would say is that, that reducing the anxiety of the new is actually a way better than adding a new feature or creating more push. And, and that the, the four forces actually work together and that actually reducing anxiety can actually enable people who have less push and pull to actually make it happen. Think of it as energy in the system. And so to me, um, what, what I tend to do is, is once I know there's a push and a pull, the question is, is how do I manage the anxiety so I can actually get people to make the progress? Because it's usually a hump they have to get over to do that. So I think it's, I think that's, I, I, I'm not a big fan of adding more features uh, because I think that at some point in time that, that, that makes people then say, who don't need all those features to want to discount because now you have too many things that, that, that given the things that they only need 10 things and you've got 15. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. And um, we've also got Alfredo here who's saying, how can I identify customers that want to make a progress, but they can't with the existing products on the market? And I guess this is a good segue in maybe talking about um, competitive landscape as well and the role yep. of jobs in there. Yep. So, so there's two things is, is I, I think of uh, both um, where, so there's a difference between people wanting to make progress and, and actually putting effort or try, trying to do it, right? So they can think about it and say, you know, I'm, I'm very frustrated with, you know, uh, my, my uh, cable TV provider, but they're not actually looking for anybody to do it. Like they're not out there. They just, they complain, right? The, the, the bigger thing is that there's two aspects here is what I call, uh, what Clay, Clay actually la labeled it as non-consumption, where people want to make progress, but they can't. They, they, they just don't have access. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have uh, the money. They might not have the resources, et cetera. And so there's a lot of markets where I see that real growth comes from the people who want to make progress but can't because of knowledge, access, uh, resources, et cetera, right? The other is, um, is a favorite one, which is to actually look for workarounds. Like when they can't have access or they can't do it, what are the things that they do to make it work? So like my favorite, uh, last week I was doing an interview and it's like, um, you know, it's like they, they get a report and what they do is they end up scanning the report and then they end up pulling it into Excel and then they end up doing like these five other things to the report. And I'm like, well, why don't you ask the person if they could actually do that in the report? And they're like, well, that never occurred to me. 
Like they, they don't <laughs> even see that as, as, as like work to them. They see that as part of their job. But the, the moment that we could actually see this work around, they could actually put it right into the report. And so part of it is to see where people are doing other things or adding other things or, you know, accepting of, of inferior performance because it's just the way it is. Right. Yeah. And just uh, another one from here. Uh, Gloria is asking, um, any difference, nuance, similarity between the Opportunity Trees framework from Teresa Torres and the Jobs to be Done concept? I guess here it's more... So you'll have to help me with that. Yeah, so Teresa Torres is this lady who's a product coach and she talks a lot about continuous discovery, yep. um, which is how do you practice uh, user research as a product manager in parallel of doing delivery uh, efforts as part of your you know, engineering team. Mm-hmm. Um, and she explains that uh, part of the uh, the product discovery process is identifying opportunities from your research exercise, mm-hmm. and then for each opportunity, identifying some of the solutions that can help address some of these opportunities you've identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's a very um, if I had to compare it with jobs to be done, I would say um, it's a very functional view of jobs to be done. If, if, if I could say that, um, but I don't know, maybe you, you have a view uh, on that based on what I, I've just said. Well, what I would say is like, uh, constantly being able to interview and talk to your customers about the product and how it fits into their lives is one thing. I think there's still some, what I call product quality things. You have to actually understand about your, your product that you have to actually do some product research around as well. And so to me, this is the jobs to be done is primarily meant for innovation and what's next and what to go build on top of what you're doing, as opposed to executional excellence of making sure that you're delivering on what you, the promise you made. And so I think that, that they're complementary to each other, as opposed to, I don't think it's one or the other. I think the fact is, is when you're in when you're in the mode of being able to understand how your product is doing and, and understand where, where the operational excellence has to be, I think that's that's important. And then at the same time, when you're trying to figure out what's next, the job I would use jobs to do that. And so I think you can they're, they're complementary in that context. But I don't know that much about that method. No worries. And that's a, that's a really, really good segue into one of the questions I get the most from the product community here um, in Europe is how do you qualify that the project that you're going to work on is jobs to be done uh, friendly right like how do you know that this thing that we're going to we're going to dedicate time to is jobs is actually going to help with that and you just touched upon that you said that um jobs is typically when you're going to talk about a new product so something that or, doesn't or new features or, or new something, feature something, something that doesn't we don't know. exist right exactly so what are some of the other kind of like criteria. I'm trying to understand whether there's like some form of a checklist that a product manager, for example, could look at and say, oh, this looks like a great opportunity for me to use jobs here. So I I, I think I, I, um, well, what I would say is one is if I don't know a whole lot about um, the technology or the product, the first thing I would do is go do jobs because I need to actually ground myself in kind of how it fits into people's lives first. Because I can go, again, being an engineer, I can go into the rabbit holes of all the technology and how it all works and literally get lost for weeks or days or months or whatever and 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 come back out and 
I can have an opinion of what I think it should do. But what I've learned is that I'm not that smart. Uh, who's smarter is the customer. And if I actually understand what's important to them, and now I go understand the technology, now I can go back and see kind of some of those other things that, that of what, where are the rabbit holes I should be going down from a technological perspective, because it's important to the customer. Right. I think, I think another part is, is if I have a technology or a product that I'm taking it to a new market and I, and I don't know actually kind of how they're going to use it or how it's going to actually fit in that. Again, that's where I would go do jobs. It's like anytime there's something new, right. Or some unknown, that's where I'm going to start. Um, I just wrote a book, uh, came out in September called demand side sales. And that book is really geared towards, uh, helping use jobs as the, as a frame to, to, to sell and help people buy as opposed to us trying to push product on people. And uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a little amazed at how successful it's been and how many companies are picking it up because it, most of the time there's this old tactic of like, you, you've got you've to convince people to buy. And if you try to apply jobs to the sales process, you start to realize like, no, you just have to help them find the correct context where they can value your product the most. And you know, at, at some point in time, they might not be ready, but when the, these things happen, then they're ready to actually buy your product. And so it helps helps salespeople actually really understand how to find new prospects or how, how to see when people are ready to buy the product. And actually, when you, when you say, I go do jobs, like, what does it mean exactly? How do you find your entry points and what do you look for opportunities to innovate? Uh, so again, I, I go back to when I go do jobs, it's always around some kind of struggling moment where there is some amount of energy that, that basically has, uh, people have to overcome in order to make progress. Like it's, it, it, they, they, they have to stop doing something and, and, and start doing something else. So for example, um, we did some work here in the fall that was around what causes people to say, today's the day I'm going to run for office here in the United States. Like it's a struggling moment, right? It's a very big choice. And it's like, what has to happen in their lives and what outcome do they have to, they have to hope for. And the interesting part is the difference between running for office and being in office are actually two very, very different things, but you have to actually realize that there's a lot of education that people need if they want to run for office and how to run and how to run the office once they get in. And so it's a very interesting aspect of lots of people just kind of jump in and run, but they actually don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and so can you actually provide education and help to understand how do you run for an office? And that's that's the organ that's a not-for-profit organization I helped basically uh, change the way that way their approach to helping people run for office, making it easier or at least more convicted and more uh, purposeful. And this high level of energy, is this how you define a struggling moment? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's energy that, again, so here's the thing is what I would say is nothing is random, everything is caused. And so if it's caused, what is the things that have to be in place for, for that to have, like buying a new ERP for, for, for a fortune 100 is not a random exercise. There's probably 50 different committees and subcommittees, but to be honest, there's somebody or some group that is pushing to say why they need to get rid of the old. And they're either, there's some pushes and there's some pulls and there's some anxiety. And so part of it is to understand how do they resolve that? And so it's partially understanding where is their tension, where is their struggle, 
And where is there where people want to make progress, but they can't? Right. And you mentioned earlier that you try to, you, you taught yourself how to understand people and understand huh. what they don't say. Yes. What they really mean. And, and you took the example of someone uh, changing the way they, they phrase or they, yep, they don't. They phrase things, yep. How, how did you train yourself? Did you? Yeah, so so I, I actually went and I learned from a retired uh, detective. And then I actually found uh, um, uh, somebody um, here in the U.S. who basically was in the, in, in, in the intelligence industry. I think the best book to actually do this is, is and I have one, I've been keeping a, a, law, a log of all the different techniques and everything that I use. And I was thinking of kind of writing a book around that. But, the, but Chris Foss has a book called Never Split the Difference. And it has virtually every technique that I use and more in it. And it's phenomenal. And it is, it's by far the best interrogation book of mirroring and matching and how to, how to, you know, how to, how to play, uh, how to, how to, how to, how to play dumb around a, an answer. Like, wait, I don't know what that means. Tell me more. Um, how to actually, you know, again, how to make sure you're not judging them, but you're more uh, bringing it on you as a lack of understanding, as opposed to why did you do that? Like, I'm confused. Why'd you do that? Right. There's very different subtle things you got to learn on how to, how you phrase words and things. And Chris Voss is a master at it. He's, he's, uh, he's obviously he's, he's, he's what I would call the king of it. So he's very good. That's super interesting. Thanks a lot for this. Um, we're coming uh, to a close before we, I think we've got um, just under five minutes left before we actually um, uh, kind of say goodbye. <laughs> I want to use this time um, for us to talk a little bit about um, demand side sales, your latest book. Yep. Uh, I'd, I'd like you to say a few words about this, but just before we go into that, I want to say that this is one of the, I would say business books <laughs> that I've read, um, which is actually super easy to read. I think it's probably one of the easiest books I've uh, ever found was, you know, that easy to read. So kudos on, on, on the work you've done there. Uh, it was, well, it was how, absolutely great. I was going to say, how does a dyslexic person write a book? Right. And so that's, that's really uh, part of the story, which is I found a company called scribe media who allowed me, what we did is we framed everything. Uh, so we framed, we did jobs. What was the job of the book? Like who bought other sales books? What's the job? And then we framed what the jobs of the book were. Then we broke it into systems. What are the underlying systems for that book, right? And then from there, what we did is we talked about each chapter and then somebody basically took my voice and wrote and wrote the book. And so for the most part, when you read it or you listen to it, it sounds like me. <laughs> Right. And so that's why that's it's so easy to, 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 to read is because it's, 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 re it's, it's, it's how I speak. Right. Right. That's super interesting. And yeah. you also mentioned that, um, uh, there's, uh, there's another book, uh, coming, right. But yeah. before we move on to, to this new book, you can, you can maybe give us a, a, a little, a little bit of a, a taste of the, the, the next book. But, um, I found that, in demand side sales, actually, what I found was really interesting was not only did you talk about uh, jobs and how to innovate, um, but you'd give a lot of really concrete examples. Um, and I thought it brought, it's helped me connect the dots that I uh, had identified 
in my past experience as a product manager, hearing and practicing jobs to be done. I think this book came in and kind of solidified everything that I had heard and done and observed before. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the kind of the recipe for this book and, and, yep. and how you think it's going to help product managers, designers, user researchers, better practice jobs? Well, so there's a couple of things. One is um, the book was primarily written for, for, for two reasons. One is um, uh, th that, <laughs> at least here in the United States, when you go to business school, you actually don't get a sales class. And I've done seven startups and I've run different companies and sales is the hardest part of any of the businesses I've ever run. And you start to realize like, why are they not teaching sales at business school? And so part of this was to, 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 to get to an underlying theory, as Clay would say, is one of the reasons why they don't teach sales is there's no sales theory. And so can we apply jobs theory to actually understand how people buy and, and get the conversation at least at business school so people can have conversations about it. That that was the first intent. Um, I've, it's what I'm teaching at Northwestern and it's one of the things that I kind of put on the docket. The second though is that there's a lot of people who sell who don't even know they're selling and they're helping people make progress. And so can we actually empower the rest of the world that, that, that are actually helping people make progress to realize that they actually have to understand this as a as a science and not just an art. And so for example, a teacher actually sells a lesson to a student and a nurse sells a, a rehab program to a patient. And ultimately they have to help the patient make progress and the student make progress. And so just by, by actually helping them understand like they're not selling, they're actually helping them make progress, you can reframe it, right? And so I actually wrote it the least for what I would call the best salespeople in the world And what, what I'm finding is the people who are really good salespeople are actually liking it because it allows them to actually change the way from a funnel to the timeline, which is uh, where are people in their buying process as opposed to where we are in our selling process. And there's a this notion of su supply side and demand side. And so ultimately, as a product manager, you need to know how to help everybody around you make progress. You need to know how to make help the executives make progress. So you actually need to know what, what's pushing them, what's pulling them, what outcome do they really need? What trade-offs are they willing to make? And as you go down in the organization, you have to realize like what progress does the engineering team have to make and understanding all that. And so to be honest, we, we, we all have to learn how to sell one way or another. And let's start by understanding how do we actually sit at the, on the other side of the table and understand the progress that our counterparts are trying to make that yeah. will actually make our world easier. And there's a lot of empathy in doing that as well, right? Yeah. I think yep. it's, it's where it all comes together. So definitely uh, a big recommendation for me. I thought the book was super interesting. What can you tell us about the next book? What can we expect? Well, so I do have a, a demand side sales 201 coming out. Um, we're starting that one in, in, in uh, June. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm partnering with people who are experts in the different parts of the timeline. So marketers and salespeople and uh, um, uh, customer success people. And we're going to map all these tools and techniques into the timeline to show people kind of almost like a, like a handbook or, a, you know, mm -hmm. different tools and techniques, right? The book that I just finished, which will be out in September is called uh, Learning to Build. And it's the, the five bedrock skills of an innovator and entrepreneur. And it's a little bit of a tribute to my mentors who 
took a, I'll say a dyslexic illiterate kid from Detroit and who was very curious and gave me all this knowledge and, and methods and tools and enabled me to do things. And then uh, sh- uh, the people that I've shared it with, uh, so there's more stories and case studies in it, but it's about these kind of underlying tools that, that, for example, empathetic perspective is one of those things where, you know, they don't teach it in engineering school. They don't teach it in business school. And the place where you learn empathy the most is actually in theater. And so like, uh, I know, uh, there's a gentleman I've, uh, worked with his name's Jay Gerhardt. And he basically went and learned empathy through basically, uh, learning improv and, and, and that's made him such a great product person because he's been able to learn some of these other tools and techniques. So that's the next book is really go, talked about learning to build and those underlying skills to actually become a good builder. Amazing. I can't wait now for, for yeah. September and, and for, the, for the book to be out. Um, listen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, of your business schedule for doing this with us today. It was super interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. If you're still listening, I guess you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. If you can spare a minute, it would be great if you could leave us a comment and five stars on Apple Podcasts. That would help other people like you find the show and support our work. Thank you so much for listening to Product with Panache.